0: Welcome to the Flabby Bottom Flying Club Studios and the EAA Chapter 84 Podcast. I'm your host, David Weber, and in this episode, we bring you my good friend and chapter member, Ken Kruger, to talk about his career as an aeronautical engineer, which included such notable aircraft as a B-2 Stealth Bomber, the Vans aircraft lineup, and most recently, the Vashon Ranger. Ken tells us what it was like working at Vans Aircraft for almost 20 years, starting in the mid-90s, the innovations he and his team developed for the home builder, and how it influenced the industry. Then in our conversation with Ken, we discuss what he is working on today through his new company, Sky Designs. We close the interview with Ken's thoughts on where he sees the future of aviation going, some of the struggles it will have to overcome, and his advice on how to get it done. Ken was a joy to talk with, and because Ken has so much history in Experimental Aviation, it felt like we left too much on the table, so we might have to have him back. I bring you the latest in Chapter 84 news, an Oshkosh 2021 update, and the latest on the private space race that's heating up. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Welcome to the Flabby Bottom Flying Club Studios, and it's with great honors today that I welcome Ken Kruger to the studio. How are you doing today, Ken? Good, David. Thanks for having me. Welcome aboard. All right, Ken, let's kind of jump right into the thick of it all, and uh, something that a lot of people don't know much about you is your childhood. Kind of tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your family life was real early on.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in a little town in central eastern California called Bishop, California. It's kind of a tourist town, but I always like to tell people it's also in the middle of the Golden Golden Triangle of naval aviation. It's halfway between Fallon Naval Air Station and uh, China Lake Naval Weapons Center, and then to the to the west is uh, Lemoore Naval Air Station, Lemoore.
0: Great. And so, was there a lot of aviation activity happening around your house then?
1: There were lots of military jets flying by. Um, I remember Independence Day celebrations were always out at the airport, and the Navy would manage to send a couple Phantoms our way, and that was pretty cool. Yeah,
0: they're they're pretty quiet airplanes, aren't they? <laughs> oh, yeah. He says
1: sarcastically. Yeah, and occasionally they would have a failure. You know, somebody flying from Fallon down to China oh, really? Lake, and they'd have a failure. And of course, my dad, which is relevant to this, is he was a pilot, and so he wanted to foster aviation in his little kids. And uh, if they, there was a, I remember one time an A7 ended up diverting to Bishop, an A4, I remember another time. And so we would always go out and look at the airplane, you know, so that was great fun. So
0: were there a lot of air shows then when you were growing up? Did your family go do air shows?
1: Um, Occasionally, yes. I remember seeing, uh, you know, Bob Hoover came and flew a Bishop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, incredible. Um, Going to Reno, you know, I remember that one time as a young kid, seeing Art Shoal fly, things like that. Wow,
0: that's an experience. Yeah.
1: And of course, when uh, Edwards Air Force Base, which is a couple hours south uh, had their open house in usually November. Is that the Air Force a- anniversary is November or October? Know. You would know more than me. Anyway, we would go down for those open houses and see the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds. So, yeah, that's going to get your blood going.
0: So your dad was real supportive then, obviously, in your aviation. Uh, any right. other family members?
1: Yeah, well, my dad and my mom had both had kids. They were from previous marriages. And when they got together, um, they uh, ended up having uh, – myself and my younger brother but my mom also a little bit of an adventuress. but she like she was learning to fly actually also when she was pregnant with me
0: oh that's great yeah sort of uh told the future shall we say, right? <laughs> yeah yeah i'm not sure why i like airplanes but but really i mean i you know when did you start liking airplanes i have no recollection myself okay yeah yeah i, I just know that i always have
1: and it's funny it's a little it's kind of funny a little embarrassing but you see these old home movies of yourself and it's like there's an airplane in my hand
0: yeah my dad matter of fact i was just having a conversation with my dad the other night about all the lego airplanes i would build and fly around the house cool so yeah (laughs) i have the same disease Uh, yeah well we're safe with together (laughs) yeah so uh you're you're growing up in uh bishop california Dad's obviously supportive of your aviation and you're going through high school uh, and you decide, hey, I want to go to college. Yeah. What what kind of advice did dad give you on that?
1: Um, You know, I don't really remember any advice from specifically from my dad because it was just uh, very early on. I knew, you know, I I had bad eyesight early on. So I knew, well, gee, I'm not going to be flying those Navy jets, but heck, maybe I could be part of the design team. And so I knew very early on, I wanted to go be an aerospace engineer and learn, you know, go to college, get that degree and and then
0: work in the industry. And so... Uh, and of course, all your friends were very encouraging of this uh, geekism, shall we say, of aviation, right? In a way, yeah,
1: because um, I don't know if it's something in the water, but I know um, two of my friends in college or in high school from, from growing up We flew model airplanes together, and both of those guys are now Southwest pilots. (laughs) And there was another, those were just two guys in my class of, you know, 180 kids. So, um, and then, you know, classes above and beyond, above and below us also, there were some airplane nuts there too.
0: So where did you find yourself then going to college? Yeah, I ended up going to
1: San Diego State University, which was really... In the end, it was a good fit for me, but it wasn't my first choice going in. I would have loved to have gone to a Cal, you know, UC Berkeley, or even the Naval Academy, but or Cal Poly would have been the place I wanted to go. Um, but those those places were above my uh, GPA and maybe even above. You so know. why
0: San Diego State then?
1: Well, San Diego State offered uh, aerospace engineering, um, ah. and they were a part of the Cal State system, so it was affordable. And, you know, it was just a, the right place at the right time so for me. So you knew
0: right then and there that, that aerospace, aerospace engineering was where you wanted to go, or aeronautical engineering.
1: Absolutely, yeah. You know, a lot of people said, or not a lot, but, you know, you'd get the occasional advice from someone who said, well, just go get an ME degree. That's pretty close. Go to Cal Davis or go up to University of Nevada, Reno, and get that, that uh, mechanical degree. And it's like, No. No, I want to be at aerospace. I want aeronautical aerospace. And so I'm glad I stuck to my guns and did that. And you know, San Diego State was a good good fit for me. Cal Poly is nice. It's a great place because you know, their motto is learn by doing, so you get a lot of hands-on experience at Cal Poly to supplement the book learning and the theoretical. So San Diego State was a little bit lean on that hands-on, but heck, I'm an airplane nut. What am I going to do on the weekends? Go to the airport. You go to the airport. You make friends. People's. So, what
0: airport did you go to?
1: Oh yeah. Um, so I had my got my pilot's license just before. Maybe it was between years, but I had my pilot's license. I remember taking my check ride uh, in you know the end of August and almost uh, immediately packing up the car, going down to San Diego. And so I had my pilot's license. Where where was this that you got your pilot's license out of? Oh yeah. You keep asking me on that. Question. Yeah. Oh, I learned to fly at Bishop. <laughs> Oh, okay. Which is a great place to learn to fly because it's the, the bottom of this deepest valley. So is, you would go
0: home during the summer? Oh, and, yeah. And that's where you started getting your flight training.
1: Yeah, I started flying in high school. My dad was generous enough to let me use his airplane. Really? Um, yeah. <laughs> and so that was good. And, and friends, uh, you know, instructors, friends would, mm-hmm. would fly with me. Um But uh, it's a great place to learn to fly because you're in the mountains, so you learn mountain flying. It's hot and it's high. You learn about density altitude, and uh, it's pretty much desolate and deserted, so you uh, get lots of airspace. I remember I had to take a trip. I had to fly down to Lancaster, California, Fox Field down at Lancaster to get my three takeoffs and landings at a towered field. And I remember going down there and said, it's
0: 75. How long of a flight was that? Uh, it was a good hour. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty funny. Because but, there's just no other towered airports around that area. Exactly.
1: Yeah, it's that far out in the middle of nowhere. So that was kind of fun. But anyway, so I went, uh, get, get my pilot's license, go down to San Diego. Well, Gillespie Field in El Cajon, near San Diego, uh, there was a cadre of folks there. And they had us, I learned to fly in a tailwheel airplane in a Satabria. And I wanted to continue to do that. And there was this old clapped out Satabria that they used to tow to banners. And that it was, it was for rent. And so I would save my pennies and, you know, go fly the Satabria.
0: So tell our listeners what the rate was at that time. Oh, I don't remember, but... What do you think it was? I'm going to say $30, $40 bucks an hour.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't... And this is 1980? Uh, 83, 84 maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Different
0: time. So uh, was the, the access to the airport, was it anything like it is now? Or was it? Did they just let you walk on and walk around? And,
1: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just you know I just drive there, go around. Hey, there's a stop. Sabi- oh, it's for rent, you know. And you figure out who owns it, and you get to know people. And it's it's like hanging out here, you know. There's a, a group of people, you know. They've got projects going on. It was called Skid Row. Right. It was the row of hangars there, and there were a bunch of folks doing different things. Um, Addison Pemberton was actually one of the people there at that oh, time. Wow. That yeah. Was, yeah. So he was always restoring a you know stagger wing or a steerman or. Gosh, I don't. Is he remember. not
0: over in Spokane now? Is he that- is, yeah, oh,
1: right, yeah. So, it felt um,
0: Field, I believe.
1: Yeah, and a um, old soaring uh, guy named Bob Fronius. Uh, he was restoring an old training glider from World War II. Um, his son Doug, I think, is well well uh, recognized and renowned in the soaring world. And so, you know, through no fault of my own, I kind of stumble into this place and you know get connected and you know, learn learning stuff and doing stuff. It's pretty cool. It really supplemented what I was learning in in classes Monday through Friday.
0: Now you graduate from college with your degree in aeronautical engineering. Airspace engineering, yeah. Airspace engineering. Where do you find yourself after that?
1: Yeah. So uh, got a job at Douglas Aircraft in Long Beach, California, working on the C-17 project.
0: Um,
1: and it was the go-go 80s. You know, defense spending was big, making up for, you know, years and years of, of neglected uh, defense spending. And uh, so got to work on the C-17. I worked on the empennage, the horizontal tail and the vertical tail of the C-17.
0: Were there any major problems that you had to stumble across in there?
1: It was early enough in the project that we were not um, cleaning up the problems. We were the ones making the problems.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Build it, design it, throw it over the wall, let the other guy take care of the problem. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> but we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later.
0: <laughs> so so you're on the C-17 project. Um where is this at exactly? This is in Long Beach, California.
1: So okay. uh, my wife, uh, Susan and I, Susan had a, her business
0: degree. We both were working at Douglas. So we kind of jumped over Susan. You had met Ju- Susan at college, correct? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Susan was this cute girl that lived down in the, the floor below me in the dorms and we struck up a friendship and, you know, ended up being a a romance and we're married and it's been (laughs)
0: 35 36 years she's a wonderful lady i've met her several times so you're a lucky guy yeah all right so you and susan are now married right living
1: in southern california uh you know what's the next thing you do you want to buy a house and it was mighty expensive we were getting a reasonably good income Mm -hmm. at that time it's like you know wow we don't you know we can't afford a house but we can afford an airplane so uh, we bought uh, a Sotabria Sautab- a 7 ECA, and we, we flew that thing all over the place. In Cal- Southern California, we would fly down to San Diego. We would fly to Central California up to, to Bishop to see my parents. We would fly to up the coast. You know, it was just really great. And, you know, here I am, a 24, 25-year-old engineer, you know, putzing around in his own little airplane. Pretty haven't cool. Happened. Yeah.
0: Absolutely heaven. not Yeah. That's incredible. You're uh, you're flying around, doing a lot of things. Are you having any dreams, any thoughts at this point about uh, branching off into your own? Or are you still thinking, I want to stay in the corporate side of, of aviation?
1: Yeah, um, good question. Um, I had dreams of building an airplane. Of course, at that time, you know, the hot home builds were like the glass air. Or the kit foxes were just coming online. Um, and then there was this kind of obscure company called Vans that they had an airplane. A guy in Bishop was building an RV4, and I got to watch that kind of come together over the summers as I would go home and work as a fry cook, you know, make money, go back to college. And after I got out of college, and this guy had his RV4 finished, and you know, we all know the story. It's like a ride in the back seat, and it's like, oh man, I got to get me one of these. So that really was a pivotal moment for me was I'm going to build an airplane. And the nice thing about the RVs is that they were affordable. You know, I couldn't afford a glass air. Right. Um, Especially
0: at that time because the RV4 I believe was still uh, you could buy it in separate and do a lot of the work yourself. You didn't have to buy the whole kit. Correct. Right? Yeah. So you could buy a sheet of aluminum with plans and do things, right?
1: Yeah. That takes a special kind of person right. like you, you know, built wow. from plans. Special. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're special. <laughs> special, <all right>. <laughs> <laughs> special but. but not in the kind of way that you want to be.
0: <laughs> Anyhow,
1: but uh, I ended up, eventually building an rv of my own but which was the six yeah built an rv six and it's still here
0: at that time time, was it a kit yeah
1: yeah but you bought the empennage was
0: it pre-punched no pre-punched pre-punching had never been dreamed of
1: at that time
0: so so it was still plans with sheets of aluminum cut but not pre-punched
1: definitely yeah a lot of
0: things pre-formed most of the things were preformed, but
1: okay. yeah, you you definitely got use, good use of your tin snips and measuring uh, fastener layouts and cutting and, you know, real home building doggone. Real <laughs>
0: <laughs> Back in my day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but uh, we How long did it take you to finish that? I started in ninety and finished it in ninety three.
0: Oh wow. Yeah. So That's pretty good. That's dedication.
1: Well, and Susan, again, bless her heart, you know, she would be out there helping and she, we, a funny story. We tried the old traditional, okay, I'll, you hold the gun, dear, or you hold the bar, dear, and I'll hold the gun. That did not work very well. I think there was a (laughs) thrown bucking bar somewhere. (laughs) We won't talk about that. We won't
0: talk about that in, in respect to Susan. But Susan
1: said, well, let me try the gun. And, you know, I said, okay. And She has a nice touch on that trigger. That's wonderful. Yeah. So if you want to talk to Susan, you can just come to me. I'll rent her out, you know, for.
0: Yeah. 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 You rent her at a very reasonable price, right? (laughs) Have you talked to Susan about this? (laughs) She won't hear this. (laughs) (laughs) Just between you and me. Yeah. But it was, um, you know,
1: a mistake Mm -hmm. for me to try to to get her to hold that, you know, big heavy bar. and, And we worked through it. And I think we were better off at the end for it despite maybe
0: a few arguments along the way. <laughs> ah. Yeah. Yeah. You're still loving each other. Now you're at, um, uh, down in California with McDonald Douglas. Correct. And you're on the C-17 project. You kind of start wrapping things up there and you move on to Boeing, I believe, right?
1: Correct. Yeah. Southern California was great, but Southern California is mighty expensive. And, and there's some lifestyle things, you know, traffic and smog. And so the Seattle area looked attractive. And of course, Boeing was also looking for folks. And so uh, applied for and got a job working on the B2 here at Boeing. And in fact, here in in the Seattle area, I flew the Cetabria up here. And we bought a house and built a garage. And that was when I started.
0: Seeing. So this was down, actually down at Boeing Field that, that you were working out of? Correct, yeah. Okay.
1: I was working across the street from the museum at the what they called at the time, the DC,
0: the developmental center. Yeah, which is no longer there. Yeah, yeah, crazy. <laughs> crazy. So you're down downtown Seattle. Where are you living in Seattle at this time?
1: Uh, we were living in Fall City. Again, you know, Ken and Susan's rule for finding real estate, start at the airport, and
0: work out. <laughs> and work outside yeah. of that. Yeah. It well, served us well. Well, that's wonderful. So you're working on the B2 program. I mean, that was a complex program. I think they were doing things in that program that had never been tried before. Um, I would imagine you've got a lot of stories. What can you share with us on on what they learned. What were the big mistakes and what did you learn from them?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I was working on the outboard section of the wing uh, of the, the B-2, the outboard. It's a flying wing. So the whole thing is the wing, you could say. But it was the outboard section. And at that time, those were the l- single largest pieces of composite aircraft structure in the world. Uh, I think they were 60 feet long, the spars and the oh upper gosh. and lower wing skins. Um, they were solid laminate parts. Uh, autoclave cured so 350 degree cure in an autoclave under high pressure and it's interesting you know the thermal and they were these are graphite epoxy parts so carbon fiber and the just crazy things that would happen uh, the carbon has a negative coefficient of expansion so it gets bigger when it gets hot and so it would shear some of the little pins that would hold some stiffeners in place Um, Mm -hmm. sometimes the the temperature control wasn't quite right, and so you'd get voids. They would do a transonic ultrasound inspection, yeah, through transonic ultrasound, TTU, and make sure in lieu of a coin tap test, they would Mm -hmm. do the the ultrasound inspection, and you'd find uh, inclusions or bubbles or voids in the... Had
0: that technology existed before then for this kind of uh, composite, or was this something that, that Boeing had to develop?
1: Boeing uh, bid uh, an A six re wing project to put composite wings on an A six, and I think uh, I've talked to A six pilots who said, "Yeah, I really don't like flying those airplanes." But it was a great experience builder for Boeing to learn how to do composites, and of course, it's still learning. But you know, the A six built the experience for B two, which built experience for you know now seven eight seven. Right? And, you know, who knows what else? So. Yeah,
0: it's definitely the future of, of aircraft construction going forward. But yeah. Lots of advantages. Like everything in engineering, you don't know, get something for free. Yeah. So Boeing's having this new experience building with carbon fiber and composite construction. Was there anything else that Boeing had to learn? Boeing at that
1: time really wanted, they wanted in the worst way to, to build fighter aircraft. And I think that was part of the McDonnell Douglas merger or buyout, whatever it was. And in fact, you know, they got their wish, although maybe not the way they wanted to by, um, you know, buying the fighter company, Mac Air, uh, rather than than growing them themselves. And we know with the um, F-32 and the F-35, you know, the the, um, JSF competition, the Boeing entry was Pretty mm. lacking. I mean, yeah. they just really Not floundered. only was
0: it ugly, but it underperformed immensely.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a famous example of, you know, changing the configuration of the Yeah, airplane. they changed
0: the wing in the middle of the development of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I don't know this from fir- firsthand. I know it from watching the Nova. Yeah. But, you know, they had
0: problems with
1: the composite wing and in the same stuff. But it was a different technology. So they kind of moved on to the thermoplastic rather than the thermoset composites and they thought it was going to be a big savings and it ended up being just more of a, of a hassle so uh, you know by that time I had moved on from from uh, Boeing but um, so
0: do you think that this this new technology and carbon fiber and, and composites how do you think that's influenced aircraft design today Um
1: well, as you alluded to, there's there's advantages and disadvantages. I remember on the B two, there was a big concern over lightning protection, and it was fun. They showed us pictures of uh, Av eight B, for example, which had a composite wing. What 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 happens when the lightning attaches to the wingtip and it tries to conduct this electricity through you know zillions of teeny little wires crisscrossing each other? So it's electrically conductive, but it's a high resistance kind of a thing. You know, the inductive does resistance does it
0: like actually explode apart? Oh and yeah! Oh my. God. Gosh. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine that, people wanting to blow things up. <laughs> yeah. So it would literally delaminate and
1: explode this thing, huh? It would get, so like a metal fastener would get so hot that it would melt the, the composite, you know, and then it, or the, the matrix, the, um, mm-hmm. the epoxy, and of course the high resistance of the, the electricity trying to get out through the carb, the ends of the carbon fibers, you know, it just couldn't handle it and it would blow up.
0: Oh my gosh! How did they solve it?
1: Um, do you know, I know that they put uh, mesh on the outside of the airplanes. They do this on like Cirrus's. Okay, so, so
0: that that kind of technology, which I've seen before, where they had like a, a physical wire mesh to give the electricity a path to go through. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, but there was all kinds of interesting stuff happening. Did on. they try anything else at first that you know of? Um, the the assumption, I, I as far as like lightning protection, yeah. it was no, no, um, yeah, not that I know it's of. It was pretty obvious yeah. at that point. But again, at Boeing, everyone's a specialist. Um, there was this these people I remember working with this one woman who was her. She was a lightning strike specialist, and so she knew all of the things to do and not to do. You know, there were people who were finish, uh, uh specialists, you know, how to protect the aluminum next to the carbon fiber, which are about as far apart galvanically as they can be. Um, you know, and so as a design engineer, I'm kind of, you're, you're trying to pull all of these little different bits of information. Of course, you're working with the stress people who are saying, well, it needs to be this thick and the weights people who say, make it lighter, uh, you know, so it's kind of fun to be in that environment. I really liked working at the big companies. And one of the other things that I learned from the big companies is the importance of having standards for everything you do. And it was it became almost right. a game. And there was a wall of drafting standards and design standards and things like
0: that. But they're so important. Yeah, dedicated people to enforce those standards. Yeah. Check boxes here, check boxes there. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, you and I have talked about right. it. at you know, our day jobs that it can be, it can just cause so much trouble without those kinds of, but it's
0: a pay me now or pay me later kind uh, of thing. Is it not?
1: Oh, totally. Totally. And you got to build that culture in of Hey, you know, how are we going to do this? Well, go look at the, go look at the drafting standard, go look at the design standard. um, Those, those sorts of things. And that, I'm really thankful in my career, you know, I'm more known for the small airplanes, but I'm very, very thankful for that big airplane experience because you get to see, you know, what does it look like when you have literally thousands of people working
0: together on the same project and... How do you get that seamless design where everybody's doing the, the marching to the same beat? Yeah. Very that, difficult.
1: Yeah, yeah. Not easy yeah. and not always successful. I mean, you're going to have with, a, with that many people... It's it's not going to be as efficient. I mean, we all know the stories of, uh, you know, Kelly Johnson's team designing cool airplanes. Small team, highly motivated.
0: Engineers on the floor making changes to drafting, you know, design right there on the floor. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Pretty neat. So where else did you do at Boeing? You, did you continue to work on the B-2 program or did you end up... Doing something else.
1: Yeah, worked on a couple different projects at Boeing. And this one guy, so I was building the RV-6 at home while I was working at Boeing on B-2 during the day. And so one of the supervisors that, you know, he took pity on my soul and he knew I kind of had a little spark for aviation, <laughs> which is not all that common at Boeing. And we, we talked right. about that. but. Uh, he got wind of a project where it was a Navy proposal. The A-12, the um, Avenger 2, the flying Dorito, had been, it, it had problems. It was insurmountable design prob- problems. The program was canceled. Well, the Navy still needed an airplane. They needed an A-6 replacement. And so uh, in another building at Boeing, there was the YF-22 project going on with Lockheed, Boeing, and General Dynamics. And so uh, there was an idea to submit for the AX project. There were a number of different industry teams. I think there were three. But one of the AX industry teams was that Boeing Lockheed General Dynamics team that was going to offer up a derivative of F-22 for the Navy's requirement. And so I got to work on that uh, proposal program. And that was really cool also, because you're figuring it out as you go. Hey, okay, where are we going to put the fuel, where are we going to put the landing gear, you know, real early design stuff which was really really fun
0: did this involve any sort of modeling and, and testing did you have to test individual components and designs in doing this or was it all just virtual at this point
1: there was it was mostly virtual okay. um, you know this was a proposal project right. but one of the important things at that time you know b2 was a stealth airplane um, and so it had to be stealthy you know the a12 was supposed to be a low observable stealthy airplane so this thing had to be stealthy it was my first exposure to uh, 3d printing Printing. and it was interesting because they would three D print a, a, a what might just be a desktop size model. You know, three D printing was magic at oh, that I time, bet. and they would coat it and finish it out and put it suspended it by monofilament in a little mini rotisserie and would do shoot radar at it and figure out what the what the fur ball looked like.
0: Wow! But you know that that was pretty cool. It's you know it's magic. And of course you're doing this all. Uh non-exposed to the public this oh. is all under a blanket of secrecy right oh totally yeah 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 so you, we can't, would... you can't even tell your friends about this <laughs> cool stuff that you get to do at work right <laughs>
1: yeah and it, it you know i'm just a lowly structures design guy but we got to work with the you know i was in a space where the avionics people were and that was pretty neat to do the the uh, systems integration there and you know it and we'll we'll touch on that but systems integration is just one of the absolute key design parameters you just have to be do that right these days big airplane small airplane it's all about you know not all about but that's a major thrust major important thing
0: back it up a little bit you you've you're building the RV6. Are you involved with EAA at any point at this time? Or, or are you sort of one of these uh, rogue guys? I'd be... I, I'm going to say I'm not a rogue guy
1: because I, I wanted to be a member. And I was mm-hmm. a member of EAA, although not as low a number as you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> should have played poker with those numbers, should we have not? Yes. You would have come... <laughs> out. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Golf, you would have won. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, so, yeah, once I started building the RV-6, it, it was, yeah, I got to be an EAA member. And, and it was, it was you'd, you'd be dumb not to because you got so much information. Now, was this
0: 21 downtown or what chapter was this?
1: I was not a member of a chapter. Okay. I was just a member you're of EAA. You just a member of EAA National. at this point. Okay. Yeah.
0: But you're, you're doing things that are in the process of, of developing this concept of actually going out and designing your own aircraft. This is still in the back of your head. Yeah. You've got a big grin. Our, our, our listeners can't see it, but you've got a big grin on your face, um, sort of a sly grin. I can tell you're, you're thinking, what what would I do different with this RV-6? And you eventually this comes to uh, a peak uh, later on, and we'll get on that. Yeah, yeah. But let's not jump over that. So you're still working at Boeing. You've got this, this program going, and eventually the Boeing – comes to an end. Where do you end up after
1: Boeing? Yeah. So after Boeing, I worked for a division of Macaw Cellular. And again, the world was a different place then. We were putting, we're doing STCs on airliners to put the little in-flight phones in the airliners. Well, of course, you know, uh, that's something that's come and gone. Um, but that was again, great experience to be, you know, in the military, you just build to the MILS back, and there's no certification. Well, on an airliner, you got to get an STC. You've got to right. jump through all those hoops. So I'm I'm exposed to that, and I'm also exposed to managing a project. Uh, you, you know, I was a project manager, and we had hired a contractor company to actually do the drawings. And so, again, great experience um, working with the airlines and learn a little bit about how so they were. So this work. was a
0: phone that was going to go on all the commercial aircraft.
1: Correct. You remember the GTE oh, yeah. flight phones and yeah. Yeah,
0: I remember that. Yeah, very vividly. But now, was this a designed to go on? All commercial aircraft? Did you have to do specific STCs for each design? It was specific. Or was it a blanket?
1: No, it was specific for not only each design. So let's okay. say you did a DC nine, for example, a DC right. DC. No, it's not DC nine. It's a DC nine eighty two, and it's so this,
0: S- this serial number version, uh, block, and all that along those lines.
1: Well, you had to do it to the airlines specifications. So one of the people I got exposed to traveling at that time, so I I had been to Europe once before and it was like, oh yeah, I'm, I love travel. So when the opportunity came to work for the overseas customers, SAS, KLM, uh, I think Air France did a little bit of work with them, but each customer had their own way. They wanted the cabin set up and their own seats. Right. So, I mean, they may have a fleet of, SAS had a fleet of DC-9s, And they wanted them all to be the same. And so, you know, design it, install it, figure out all the problems. You know, and the airlines, they don't like it when their airplanes don't fly.
0: No, they're not making money. Yeah. It doesn't make them any money when it's sitting on the tarmac. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They get grumpy. They get very grumpy. Okay. So now you're after this. Yeah. You leap forward a little bit more um, and you eventually end up doing. Well, uh, you know, the, the
1: cell phone things were coming on. I mean, you, the handwriting's on the wall. You see the end of that. And so while I'm uh, flying and zooming around in my RV6, um, you know, I, I'm a subscriber to the Vans newsletter and there's like, oh, we want a prototype mechanic. And so, uh, isn't you know, I'm an engineer, but dang, it'd be a lot of fun. So just on a whim, I sent the, the resume down, you know, yeah, who knows, you know, so abundantly reap abundantly you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. and one night i'm at my home you know in fall city and the phone rings and it was dick van Grunsven on the other end and so you know one thing led to another and i ended up not being a prototype mechanic but coming in as an engineer at vans and you know that's where i spent really the most time in not all together in my career but in one place which was the vans for 17 years that was 96, early 96. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, we you touched on it. I'm not sure I did, but that, you know, building the RV6 and one of the pet peeves was... If they had told me to put this nut plate in this impossible to reach place when it was then possible to reach it, my life would have been a lot easier. And so, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly that you bring forward. So that experience really served me well of having built the RV6, served me well when it came time to get to Vans. Now, the chief engineer at that time at Vans was a guy named Andy Hanna, and he had worked uh, with uh Dick and had coordinated with actually Daryl Murphy up in in BC oh, okay. uh to to apply these pun- punching punch press machines to making flat sheet metal parts and mm. you know Andy pushed to get hey let's go talk to Daryl Murphy and Daryl Murphy really was the one who per- pushed that that pre-punching using a turret punch press to make sheet metal parts and it came to Vans and you know one thing led to another and it's like man you know this this could really revolutionize things. And so, you know, at that time, Vans was just pre-punching a few kind of just basic, simple flat wrap wing skins, which, you know, that's a great improvement. So
0: now was there some education, some learning curve there to do this sort of pre-punch match, pre-punch holes? What was, the, what was that like? Because you, you can't just put a, a rib in, in, a, in a leading edge and expect them to match up. There's got to be something there that you had to learn uh, as to the design going forward. Yeah. And so I alluded to the, to what I learned at
1: the big companies and the big companies, they have, you know, thousands of people. And the amazing thing about being human is we write things down so that you can pick up where I left off or I can pick up where the guy before me. And so there's this incredible wealth of information there that, you know, you can apply it and use it. So there was great sheet metal design information there at at Douglas, um, which I was able to carry forward. The other really cool thing, and I, as I finished up my college career, there was this magic tool called CAD
0: oh. coming
1: along. And we did our senior project, and it was like, yeah, we're going to have a little bit of CAD in this. It's like, oh, cool. <laughs> um, but... By the time I got to Vans, I had already learned CAD-D, which is what we used at Douglas, and then CAD-AM, and then CATIA, and then right. AutoCAD when I did the STC thing. So I had, you know, like four foreign languages under my, well, four CAD languages, and they're a little like foreign languages. Once you've right. got a couple, the, the rest of them come easily. Yep. So yep. anyway, Agreed. that and also the 3D modeling. So you'd come in, you know, hey, I need to put a rib in this part of the vertical tail. Well, you'd go. Take a slice. You've got the shape of the rib. You know all the angles, and you know it goes from there. But you got to have that 3D model first. So I showed up at Vans for my interview. This is kind of funny, you know. And they're kind of, oh, hey, all right, yeah, hi. And and I looked over the guy's shoulder, and he, you know, what you're working on? Oh, I'm working on this wing scan And I said, oh, well, where's your 3D model of the whole airplane? And I remember it well. He he turned around, and he looked at me like I was from Mars, <laughs> and he was like 3D, you know, 3D model. <laughs> And so, again, through no fault of my own, I had this background yeah, and you came had an in
0: assumption, and yeah, that assumption didn't come to be true at Vans.
1: Yeah, well, obviously, I was able to come in, and it's like, man, I'm I'm the laziest guy in the room. Right, I'm going to do it the easy way. So I ended up making 3D models. So and- you
0: you eventually brought Vans into a CAD. Brought them forward with their CAD development.
1: Yeah, they okay. they had already recognized the value of that, okay. but of course, um, you know, getting the full use of a tool is is you know part of the name of the game. You're going to get the value you're paying for.
0: So now, was the six actually designed in CAD? No, not at all.
1: No, the RV eight was really the first airplane that, and and was somewhat in CAD. Um, I would
0: imagine there was sort of a learning curve there. And at some point you just say, stop and let's do what we know. So... Yeah, there was a lot of that. It it was a a lot of skepticism and a lot of... Well, we had talked about the the, even the cowling on the 6 and the 7 is just somebody carved a mold. Yep. And that's what it is.
1: Yeah, and it was carried forward and it served a purpose, but... There's some limitations there right. as well. Never drawn up in CAT. not to my knowledge. Yeah, and it, uh, the I mean I know of uh, actually it was ECI at the time, mm-hmm. but um, they they um, did a 3D scan of an RV8 cowl because they were you know doing their engines and but no other than that you know the first cowl that ended up coming into the being in the computer was the RV12 cowl. Right. I take that back. The RV10 Cal. RV10 Cal. Yeah, I take okay. that back. Yeah.
0: So you're doing these these designs now at, at Vans, and you're you started off on the 6. You kind of did you help refine that or you were you just you moved on to something else other than the 6? Yeah, the 6
1: was a done deal by so the time. So the 8. So the 8 was the
0: first project at Vans. Okay.
1: Then the 9. Was the
0: 8 already started when you got there?
1: Well, the 8 kind of made a big splash in the industry. If you remember at, uh, gosh, Oshkosh 95, 94? Uh Hadn't made it there yet, so I'll believe Okay. You. I'm guessing, but it was the turquoise or blue RV-8, which was a prototype. And it was basically the prototype mechanic Art Shard built this RV-8 and it was like, okay, there's the airplane. That's, that's your prototype. And you, all you engineers, you go build that in,
0: in the computer, you know, you go make that airplane as a kit. So the, the airplane was already done before it had even been put into the cat. Correct. Oh my God. You know, so
1: talk about doing things a little backwards. Um, so, you know, and it's hard to understand again, through no fault of my own, I came from, you know, a really high-tech world where, yeah, you start in the computer and you refine it. Right. And once you've got – that was not – that's not the home-built industry.
0: No. That's, and, there's no budget for that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And we'll come back to that, too, the, the budget for home-building because um, that really influenced influences what I'm doing now. Right. But, um, anyhow it was a challenge um, life is a challenge you learn stuff along the way and you know you talk about learning from your mistakes but and moving forward yeah staying
0: off the brakes just keep going forward exactly
1: and th- and that rv8 you know you look at it back at it and you go well that was silly you know it was ridiculous hey you got to start somewhere
0: that's right yeah that's right the eight's done fans is deciding they need something else
1: right so the nine was the next project chronologically.
0: So kind of tell us a little bit how they came up with the 9. Why the 9 versus anything else?
1: So Dick had, before my time at Vance had a vision for an RV-9B, excuse me, an RV-6B, which was a longer wing version that would be more of a trainer type airplane. And that airplane was a, a crude prototype but it was a proof of concept airplane and that concept was carried forward and became the rv9 kind of a longer wing lower power yeah different airfoil and some simplicity things maybe with an eye toward production maybe a certificated airplane that never happened but you know there was talk of that um you know you've been in the home built industry long enough i mean these things get you know dreams and aspirations
0: you know Distractions happen all the time. Yeah.
1: And who, you know, my crystal ball ain't no good, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, none of if us If it
0: was we'd be going to uh, buy some lottery tickets right now, yeah, right?
1: Yeah. So you do what you know how to do good. again, that that theme, you know, keep moving forward and, you know, it ain't all going to pay out. So, RV9, but we knew also that the 9 and the 7, again, the vision was to have as many common as much commonality between the RV7 and the RV9 fuselages as possible.
0: Oh, I see. And that's
1: why when you built your RV-7, I mean, there's no small number of, you know, F9 right. parts right. in there.
0: all over the plans.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the,
0: the idea was the 7 would be a little bit more of a performance or just a refined version of the 6?
1: It would be a refined version of the 6. And again, um, so it would be taking basically the wing of the RV-8 putting it together with the fuselage of the RV-9 and the tail of the RV-8, which was, you know, right. very common between the 6 and the 8 as well anyway. So it was kind of a, a natural to bring those wings from the 8, fuselage from the 9, all of the good stuff, cowling, canopy, etc., from the 6, you know, move it forward and make it the 7. So the 7 really was just a pre-punched 6. Gotcha. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. That's why the the cowling from the 6 is the same.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's exactly the same firewall, landing right. gear, engine mount. So,
0: so then, how did the development uh, perf- go on to the ten after that? What, why did Vans decide to do a ten? Well, Dick again had had a vision for
1: a four seat airplane, and in fact, um, a little known bit of Vans trivia is that the the ten, what end, what is now the RV ten, was actually given initially the designation RV seven. Um, but it stayed as this little wood model that Dick had hand carved himself on his desk until the time was right. And Mm -hmm. after we had the, the, um, seven, eight, nine moving forward, then it was time to start on the 10. And so, you know, that was kind of that, that vision, you know, of course, all the four place airplanes were becoming more expensive, you know, the certificated ones, you know, all the the marketing, the market timing was right for that airplane. Right. So we moved forward with uh, the ten uh, again, learning from some of the things that didn't go so well on the previous aircraft, uh, putting more and more into the computer ahead of time. And in fact, a cool uh, little side story was we're going through the RV 10 project and we had a, a weight uh, spreadsheet. So we're keeping track of how much everything weighs. And I remember one of the, you know, I'm the chief engineer by that time. And so we're working together and. Turn in the crank and getting the weight and balance numbers, and it's like, oh, this thing's gonna be nose heavy. And so, uh, you know, uh, you know, that sinking feeling, right? And we, we made the tough choice we had to move the wing, so we picked up the wing and moved it five eighths of an inch.
0: Oh my gosh, and, and then, that made the difference,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, a four seat airplane is a real challenge for weight and balance because you got to be able to fly one person solo with full fuel. That's the most forward condition, but then you also have to be able to fly with four people and baggage and no gas, you know, to, to land right. and still be within the, the CG envelope. So, you know, we knew we needed to, to be on the mark with that. And, and that's the beauty of the computer. You know, it's built in the computer and it takes extra time to rework all of the CAD models, but it's,
0: yeah. yeah, the time saving is incredible. As long as you do it right the first time.
1: Yeah, that's and, where you want to make your mistakes right. is in the
0: computer. Right, and this is something that you know I preach to people is that when you do the CAD, you know, as somebody who's done CAD his entire career, make sure you input it right. Yes. Don't take those cuts. I see a lot of time that people don't add constraints, that kind of stuff, and, and you, you do your CAD. Because you're gonna have to come back and change it, and when you come back and change it, and everything blows up on you because you haven't applied the proper constraints to your sketches.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's standards. It's it's modeling standards. Modeling it's, the standards. Yeah, and and you you said it. It's when you design it the first time, you have to design it to be revised.
0: Exactly. Yeah, it's gonna happen.
1: Yeah, you're you're dumb if you don't. Right. Yeah.
0: It's so the so the ten. Eventually evolves into another program where you go the almost the opposite, right? Yeah. Um, well,
1: actually, in between those, so the ten was the big beast, the four seat airplane, and then the whole light sport thing started happening, and of course that became that drove the RV twelve design. And again, Dick had some some ideas, some concepts, some visions for what the RV twelve would be. But in between that time. Um, Vans had moved from North Plains, kind of northwest of Portland, to Aurora mm. uh, South mostly south, but right. you know, Portland. But it was it was not where everybody expected us expected the company to go. We expected everyone, it was the conventional wisdom was, oh Vans is gonna move to Scapoose, and that's where Ken lived. <laughs> <laughs> um and so this shock comes down, Van, you know, Dick drops the bomb and says, well, we're moving to Aurora. And, um, so of course you build relationships at the company and this fellow who wrote the, the newsletter and was tech help, uh, Ken Scott, you know, he also had a long commute down to Aurora. And so we had this vision to design this little light air, single seat airplane with a VW, you know, affordable, uh, easy to build airplane that ended up being coming Sky One. And, uh,
0: The 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 KK. The the, the KK-1, yeah, which I
1: call the Sky-1 now. Um, Interestingly enough, I got a phone call from the fellow. He came and visited me, but the fellow who owns it lives in uh, Nampa, Idaho. So it's still flying today. It's got a thousand hours on it. Oh, my gosh. That's cool. And he loves that thing. He says that was, you know, he said, you designed that airplane for me
0: that's incredible yeah does it
1: still have the same engine in it he has it has a VW engine he has put I think a little bit greater displacement we started with 1815 right and then I think he's got it's not a 2080
0: but the VW was strictly chosen because of cost right oh yeah you wanted to keep that cost down to as low as possible
1: yeah so we mentioned uh, systems integration earlier it's a key feature mm-hmm. affordability you know right
0: it's got to be affordable so and that was that, that. Now, did you take that into consideration with the construction design too? Was this uh, sort of a, a a pulled rivet design? You weren't bucking rivets during this, or was it the 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 latter of that you said you could buck rivets? So where was the the difference? Um, it was a bucked rivet design,
1: um, and you know, because at the end of the day, you know, riveting is not the greater part of making the airplane, and and it takes time to do pulled rivets. Now, admittedly, the skill level is is much much more
0: expensive compared to solid rivets
1: on a per rivet basis yeah and if you've already got the skill to drive solid rivets and the tools which i did right you know why not why not yeah so um so anyway we built you know designed i designed that airplane built it you know the three of us me ken and a a vw engine uh, guru expert named mel ellis um and we flew it and had you know very educational,
0: had a lot of fun. Um, now did that have influence going into the R V twelve design? Anything that you had done there or was it just kind of a, a good learning curve? Um, it was
1: every bit, it was mostly a good learning curve, but there there are actually some parts from Sky One that ended up on R V twelve, Lockstock and Barrel, one of the one of the weldments on the firewall.
0: That's that's great because that, that tells you that you're learning something and you're applying it. That's a successful part. I want to bring that over and continue that on. I've seen that time and time again. Yeah, yeah.
1: And there were, you know, there were mistakes on it, but,
0: you know, heck, yeah. If you're not falling down, you're not learning, right? There you go, yeah. So the, the RV-12, which everybody knows the RV-12 and success that vans have seen with the RV-12. I mean, that is probably the most successful light sport aircraft that is around. Uh, I don't have statistics to back that up, but just... All you have to do is look around and you can see how many of those are flying. Um, Was there a lot of things that you had to do to convince Dick to go to a pulled rivet? No. Construction? No. Not at all?
1: No, that was part of his vision. Um, And, you know, I think... uh, you know, like you've said, there's advantages and there's disadvantages. Never get anything for free. No, you got to let go of something to get, grab onto right. something else. So, yes, um, that was part of the, the thing. It was intended. You know, that was kind of the target mm-hmm. builder was someone low lower skill level, first time building an airplane. You know, they want to get after it. So that right. drove the pull rivet.
0: And, and I will say that having built a, a Sonics, which is nothing but pull rivets with the cherry and rivets, I cannot tell you how many times uh, old curmudgeon airplane owners and designers would stick their nose up at me because I had done a pull rivet and where they even would hint to the point that the airplane was going to fall out of the sky. And yet it still flies today.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that construction is sound. You're just a different little bit of design that you have to go into when you're thinking about the design at that point, right? Correct. And, you know, the
1: the pulled rivet is, is liberating in some ways for a designer because you don't have to worry about, hey, how am I going to get a bar on this? Right. So, you know, yeah, it allows you to do some pretty cool
0: stuff. Well, and, and to this day, I see this all the time on, on a lot of the forums where somebody posts a picture, hey, I can't get a bucking bar in here. And of course, the first answer within the first three answers is put a pole rivet yeah. in it and move on yeah right yeah exactly so, so there's still a backup there even for the buck rivet kind of thing uh rv12 what comes after rv12 yeah
1: rv12 uh and then comes you know rv14 so again the the market says hey i like this rv7 but Everybody wants to put more, more, more right. in the airplane, and, pretty, and people
0: aren't getting smaller.
1: No, they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also, you know, want to get that those big systems. They want the performance. They're willing to pay for it. You know, they were saying basically, you know, you could say, well, RV14 is a, a big RV7. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I've heard it called the bubba of the RV7s. But you could also think of it as a two seat RV10. Right. And so, again, that parts commonality theme was
0: put to work where we took... Which it um, should be. Yeah. Keeps your costs down. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so, uh, you know, RV-10 wings, not exactly. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the wing section, but, you know, there's plenty of new parts. A little bit of RV-7 fuselage, a little bit of RV-9 empennage. The vision was that it would be a common empennage between the 9 and the 14, and that ended up not happening um so it you know if you don't follow through on your vision you're gonna now it's like oh we wanted to just carry one empennage well now there's two when you were hoping to have just one well right. that that's a step in the wrong direction but you know it <laughs> hard to argue with success the rv14 is a very popular design right. but again more upfront you know, front loading the project and putting it in the computer and more refinement because that's what the market wants. These guys today, you know, here I am, the old curmudgeon myself, Right. you know, well, the, the people today really are assemblers. And I think people, you know, the RV-14 builders would say, this is so easy. I'm just assembling. I'm not building. And that oh, yeah. that really yeah. is true.
0: Yeah. One of the things that you and I worked on was like mounting all the components in the aircraft and giving the, the builder that pre positioned location for those components when it comes to your magnetometer or your ADA horse or even yeah. the, the screen all that is now designed into the rv14 yes giving the the builder they don't even have to think about it whereas with the six yeah there was nothing there there wasn't even an indication of where things would go except for maybe the pedo
1: yeah well and you know in the rv6 Ada horses hadn't even been invented. Right, yeah,
0: right. So right, we're still back in that "quote unquote" steam gauge.
1: Yeah. era. But the you know again standardization is mm-hmm. always. I'm not going to say always, but standardization is is huge in a situation like this. It helps the, the avionics people. It helps the airframe people. It helps. You know, there's no reason not to do it.
0: Yeah, not yeah. To, not today with all the the technology we have to share that information. Yes, it's no longer going to. Uh, uh, you know, a data card and, or fiche like at Boeing and, yeah. you know, looking it up and, and Dewey Decimal Systems. It's all right there at the the tip of your, your fingertips on the on the web in the cloud. Yeah. Now, an opportunity comes up. You're still working in advance, and an opportunity comes up. And this is kind of where your path and my path start to
1: collide yeah. a little <laughs> bit.
0: Yeah. And uh, the, the whispers are going around the office that uh, this this guy is, is coming around, and uh, uh, but you end up doing something that's pretty unique, uh, along with the ownership of, of Dynon, John Turode, yep. and uh, tell us about how that all came about. And what, yeah. the, what the end goal was.
1: Yeah. Um, so I had designed the, the Sky One, the KK mm-hmm. One, and it's like, yeah, I'm liking this. You know, when you work at Vans Aircraft, you design Vans Aircraft. And right. that's great. That's the way it should be. Um, but as an aircraft designer, I felt like, you know, I'm kind of in a little a box here. And, you know, Dick still had plenty of airplanes that he wanted to, to design and build. And so... Um, John to was offering me an opportunity to come design a new light sport airplane, what ended up becoming the Ranger. And so I took advantage of that, that opportunity. And, you know, it was, I'm, it's been, I learned so many more things than I thought I was going to learn. You know, I came in thinking, great. It's just like an RV 14, you know, super home built airplane. It'll be, it'll be a breeze. Oh boy. Was I wrong? You know, you think you don't even think about it. You know, you know it in your head, but you don't know it. And that is in a home-built airplane assembly hours cost exactly zero dollars. You know, zero dollars an hour exactly. is what the builder works for. In our, in a production shop, they ain't working for no zero bucks an hour. And so no, there's a
0: production it, rate.
1: Yeah, it's all about that. It's also about um, you know at Vans we built what maybe one or two prototypes, maybe a static test article. And then it was like, you're out the door, you know, all you builders out there, this is how you put it together. You know, you don't know how to build it after two or even three airplanes. You know, here we are, what, we're north of 50 Rangers been built and it's just now kind of coming into, yeah.
0: Right. So. Right. Starting to see that, that, that glide that it, it's almost like second nature now to put one of those together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's super cool. Yeah.
0: Well, I remember, and I'll give a little inside baseball here on that. I remember a, a particular day where you guys were doing a wing loading test. And I had this vivid memory of John Turode. Again, I'll repeat, the owner of the aircraft um, company, Vashon. Um, and this sort of surreal, surrealistic uh, scenario where he's sweeping up Uh, All the little lead shot that had had come out of the (laughs) lead shot bags. And you guys are loading up the wing. And all of a sudden, that that wing let go. Yeah. And John didn't even flinch. Everybody else just jumped back when this wing let go. And John is just sitting there sweeping. And he looks at the wing and pauses for a minute and just (laughs) keeps on sweeping. Yeah, i love that that the whole shot but you learned something on, on that test i remember you guys had to do that a, a few times until you got it right yeah we sure did we were trying to do
1: a lot of different things i mean it was a different load path being a high wing airplane a cantilever high wing um you know so yeah no strut yeah ken got smarter there um the other things that you know we were trying to do this box spar that was the fuel tank and right. you know ended up not being worth it you know it was at the end of the day it was a net loss and but, but you learn something yeah we learned you know even what not to do you're learning something right yeah so right. yeah we were treading new ground and and it, you're you're kind of bust a few wings
0: yeah and you came up with some innovative techniques um as far as manufacturing uh there's things and again a pulled rivet yep Fuselage, pulled rivet wing, the whole, the whole, yeah. the whole there's there's a few uh, standard rivets in there. I know, especially in the spar, yeah, uh, solid rivets, yeah. Um, but for the most part, what would you say, ninety five percent construction with pulled rivets?
1: That's fair, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And then you you design this integration with the the Skyview system where yep. everything is mounted, everything has a mounting spot, servos have a mounting spot. Everything goes together. Yeah, it's integrated solution. Incredible, incredible, and I think that the amount of aircraft that are flowing out of the factory now is sort of a testament to that design and how you learn that. Um, it's been a successful aircraft. I think another, so. Another feather in Ken's cap there. Yeah, one of the. Sa- it's pretty satisfying to. You know, just
1: like at Vans, just like everything, you know, if you have a happy customer and they come and, oh, you know, you helped to design this airplane, you know, thanks, I really like it, you know. Yeah, that's a good feeling. Makes
0: you feel good. Yeah,
1: I mean, you get that plenty, I'm sure, with the, you know, Mm -hmm. avionics equipment and what you're doing, so.
0: So now what are you doing? I know that um, basically your role at Vashon was to come in and design the Ranger, and there was never really this this idea that Ken would stick around because Ken kind of wanted to do his own thing. So I think you're off doing your own thing now. Kind of tell our listeners about that.
1: Yeah. So uh, whether you realize it, David, or not, you kind of alluded to, hey, it's all in the cloud. It's all right here. And then also that um, the other thing you alluded to is it's expensive in the home-built world. You think about to develop a home-built airplane, it's going to take a staff of what, probably three, four, five guys or girls, five people working, dang, you know, three years at least. Oh, yeah. Maybe five. Um, And you think of a small upstart home-built airplane company. So three people times three years, you know, let's just be conservative and say the average salary is $100,000. That's almost a million bucks. Wow. $900,000 to develop an airplane. And at the end of three years you might end up with a real turkey.
0: And that's just the airplane. You're not developing power plant or avionics. You're just no. talking airframe. Yeah, you're
1: talking airframe with that systems integration. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, you know, through no fault of my own, I've been through, you know, the the big airplanes, a couple of those, not the at the level of detail, mm-hmm. but definitely been through 7, eight, nine, 10, 12, 14, Sky 1, Ranger. So that's eight airplanes that I've been through the design cycle with. And so I'm thinking, hey, what if I front my money? Because I love being behind the computer. I love doing stuff. I've, my lifestyle is pretty simple. You know, mm-hmm. I don't need a lot of money coming in, but I'd love to have some money down the road coming in so I can travel and meet people and do flying things. So our vision is to, for me, because of my experience level, to front that engineering time and develop a, an airplane that I think would be a cool airplane. Or if someone came in and said, Hey, you know, we want to get this airplane or that airplane, but I can provide a service where um, I'm going to reduce risk because I've got that experience. I'm right. going to reduce the time frame for a home built airplane company or, a, or even a factory built airplane company to come in and they could be set up real, real quickly. Now I'm going to want to get paid after the fact, but, they're making money then. So right. my vision is I don't make money until they make money, but I'm designing the airplane and I don't need, you know, you mentioned the curmudgeons that look down your their nose at you, you know, because mm-hmm. you're using blind rivets. I don't need junior airplane designers. I've been through the design cycle eight times. I go to sleep reading, <laughs> you know, airplanes. I, I'm right. talking to you after hours and enjoying <laughs> it. You know, there's. I don't think there's any bigger airplane nuts than the two of us in the room. So, you know, I've got an insight into the industry that I think can... You know, so that's kind of my yeah, vision yeah, for Sky yeah, Designs. You've built
0: this instinct. You've, you've, you've built upon that instinct and, and, and you keep learning that education. And, yeah. And, and now you want to share that. Yeah. And and get that education out there.
1: Yeah. And you think about, you know, how our lives have been enriched by aviation, by airplanes. You know, you come in contact with people from all around the world. You, you know, aviation is populated with a lot of overachievers. So mm-hmm. it's kind of fun to rub elbows with, you know, Airline pilots. Uh, one of our Sky Designs gear leg customers is a U two pilot. Um, y- you know, one another guy in the UK. I think he's a, a member of the House of Lords or something like that. Um, anyway, but you know, you meet incredible
0: people, and that's that. That is very enriching. So, tell our listeners exactly where they could get a hold of you to pick this information. Where yeah. would they get this?
1: Sky And so Sky Designs is our company, uh, and we offer design services. And where are you located at? We're located in Anacortes, Washington. But the cool thing about the world we live in today with the technology is if you're in uh, Moldova, for example, Mm -hmm. um, I can send data to you anywhere. So, you know, you think about these expensive CNC machines. There's nothing... I mean, they're great, incredible tools, but they're incredibly flexible also. And rather than you think about um, the van's quick builds, for example, they take the parts, they make them in Aurora, they send them to the Philippines, they get assembled, they come back to Aurora, and then from there, they get put in a box and then get shipped out to these various places, you know, South Africa, Australia, all over the world. Yeah, literally. Well, imagine even in just the context of doing quick build airplanes imagine if they could produce the exact same parts in the philippines now you're not shipping those parts you know twice one round mm-hmm. trip over the ocean so that technology exists for with the digital definition of everything being in the computer we can now uh, email data sets and information drawings to any place around the globe that has an internet connection and any place that they have a, man- a CNC manufacturing capability,
0: well, you can kind of see where that might go. And, you know, yeah, that technology has been put on steroids with this COVID. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, everybody's working from home now and um, Zoom meetings, you know, uh, for our listeners, if you don't know what Zoom meeting are, it's, Basically a way to have a meeting over the internet. Uh, The Dick Tracy uh, having everybody look at their their watch. It's it's capable today. We can do that um, and talk to multiple people. And the ability to share that information. And, And as I said, time and time again, the difficult thing to do in engineering, the most difficult thing to do in engineering is communication. Yes. Yes. I can tell you. That the part needs to be shaved off by 30 What part of the part, right? Yeah. yeah. So, how do you communicate that? Uh, and today's technology allows you to do that a lot better. Yeah, it's Cad, incredible. CAD does that. So what are some of the things that are you working at with Sky Designs? What can you share with us? I know that there's probably some top secret stuff going on, but what can you share with us? Well, we put uh, if you go to skydesigns.aero, you'll see Sky 1 there,
1: a photo of that guy. You'll see some other concept airplanes. Some of them are concept airplanes, like an electric airplane, for example, Um, and another one that's a concept airplane is like a, just a super sporty, you know, just a sports car of an airplane that's a tandem two seater. And, and, you know, I've been zooming around in my RV four for too long to, you know, to (laughs) in my Satabria to, to give up that tandem seating. I kind of like it. Um, there's a, a twin, you know, a real simple twin, a guy that was, um, Lives in the Philippines, and he said, Hey, the Philippine government needs a maritime patrol airplane, and it has to run on diesel engine, you know, it has to run on jet fuel, you know. So I just kind of pencil sketched, you know, a concept, and, you know, so you'll see that up there. And then there's a, a high wing four place airplane that I put some heart and soul into, and then another two seat, uh, you know, real pretty, kind of graceful looking airplane. Um, I had a chance to, I've always admired uh, Fournier's, you know, the Turing motor gliders, right. like an RF4. It's like, you know, that is a, it's straight lines. It's simple, but oh my goodness, is it pretty. It's just graceful. And so I wanted to kind of emulate uh, Monsieur Fournier in that way. It's my honor to, you know, trying to give him homage a uh, little bit. He's a hundred
0: years old. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. Uh, triple digits. That's my goal. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of alluded to electric. Um, let's get a little philosophical here. Electric in the future, what do you think? Um,
1: I think that it has some potential for sure, and and you see the cool stuff that Pipistrel is working on, and that what they're doing with the Alpha and with the Taurus, you know, electric motor glider. Uh, they say they're going to come up with an electric Pan- Pantera, um, so you know they're definitely moving forward with it. And I I I think if the phone rang and uh, the folks from Pipistrel said, "Hey, why don't you come to Slovenia? Boy, I'd be mighty tempted because <laughs> they're doing some. Susan, pack your bags. Yeah, because <laughs> they're doing that innovative stuff, right. and they've right. been doing it, and it's paying paying off. They're leading the industry.
0: I often go back when people poo poo the electric. I go back and I say, Hey, the Wright brothers never thought that they would fly. Yeah, you know, and they ended up developing their own twelve horsepower engine." Right, just so that they could fly. So, you know, let's let's take a step back. Yes, electrical is not where it needs to be, but it has to start someplace. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you know this or not, but recently um there was a electric uh air race league that was announced. So you can imagine the technology that would be developed in racing. And I hope to see that come to Reno. I hope that someday we'll see the electrics go race around Reno. And I think it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. But what better, uh, you know, mission for an airplane, for an electric airplane can you see other than six fast laps where you take off and land within, you know, a half a mile where you took off? Yeah. You know,
1: it's an ideal place. It's
0: an ideal place for that. And We all know that, to me, the biggest advantage of electric is the fact that your CG isn't changing throughout the flight envelope. You pretty much take off with the same weight that you took off, or land with the same weight that you took off from, and it doesn't care about altitude.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. The wings and the prop still care, but...
0: So electric, you think, has... A lot of potential in the industry going forward.
1: Am I putting words in your mouth there? No, not in the least bit. I think there's a lot of neat things uh, that can be done within electric. You know, you mentioned the fact that the motor doesn't care how high it is. It does. The motor doesn't breathe air, so it can make the same power. Um, You know, other cool things are you can put you can distribute the batteries in the wing, for example, and get a structural benefit with span loading um you know what there's... about
0: propulsion does that have anything is it still a single propulsion or i see a lot of electric aircraft that have the the propulsion span wise is yeah that... dis-
1: distributed propulsion yeah you know there's another... what's the advantage of that the advantage of that is you can do like the yc-14 and yc-15 you can have powered lift so oh. now you can by strategically distributing the propulsion along the upper or even lower surface of the wing you can now uh take off and land slower um also well what if i have an engine failure you know electric motors are inherently pretty reliable you've got for example but eight everything of them. mechanical fails so eventually yeah um but you know presumably you're only going to lose one at a time um i definitely see the parachutes you know whole airplane parachutes being a real important part of you know, not necessarily an electric airplane in particular, but one with distributed propulsion, because if, let's say, you have an electric failure, well, you're going to be in a world of hurt if you're super slow, you know, as a result of that powered lift, and then that powered lift goes away.
0: So do you think it just boils down to battery technology then? Is that what's going to be the the key thing for electric, or is there something else? I think all the other
1: building blocks are in place you know we know how to make airframes we know how you know electric motors are used all places in industry um, you know the cost of the batteries and of course the weight of the batteries is going to be but i think cost you know that you know those kind of four pillars of aircraft design safety affordability systems integration and then flying qualities we haven't talked about that but flying qualities are an incredibly important part of
0: so what about like a hybrid, like a hydrogen electric kind of thing? Is that feasible, or is that something that you think is, is just kind of pie in the sky? You know, I don't know. It. I
1: at first glance, I look at a hybrid, for example. You said hydrogen electric, but I think where they've got a, a small motor, whether it's hydrogen or you know conventional gasoline or diesel, connected to a genset, a generator that then charges the batteries that you have and now you don't have to have as many. It seems like you've got a lot of complexity there, whereas mm-hmm. batteries, you know, batteries, motor, switch, you know, or controller, you know, off you go. So it seems much simpler. But if you want to start to have the endurance, well, then you maybe have to do the hybrid, which, you know, is going to bring its own set of of design challenges.
0: What's going to be the revolution in aviation? What's the next big thing that's just going to, that take aviation to the next level. Uh, In my opinion, we had things like, uh, you know, the monocoque construction, getting away from biplanes and strings and wires, Um, and then we went into uh, a lot larger, um, bigger horsepower, you know, and then pressurized vessels, and then, you know, obviously the composite construction was a huge revolution. What do you think is going to happen next?
1: I think that the next big thing that's going to touch society mm-hmm. is urban air mobility. You know, it's kind of an ex- outgrowth of that electric. Sort of the air taxi thing. Is that what
0: you're thinking? Yeah,
1: it's interesting. Um, there are different takes on that. Uh, you've got the um, Lilium that is the German developed one, uh, which is basically just get get me from my house to the airport where I hop on a Lufthansa flight and go all around the world. But then there's more of the Uber air taxi. And those things are taking a bunch of different, you know, the urban air mobility thing, those things are taking a bunch of different shapes and sizes. And it's fun because at Sky Designs, you know, people, you know, they type in aircraft design and I get calls that are real interesting. Uh, One guy was saying that, hey, you know, first responders, they're going to want to have a way to get in and land and, you know, deal with an emergency situation. Um, there are those who are saying, hey, you know, this airplane, this air vehicle is not like the Lilium. It's going to be more of a consumer product where everybody has one and they use it to get from A to B and, you know, all that fun stuff. You've, we've seen the black fly at Oshkosh, which right. is a, a neat concept, you know, more...
0: Yeah. yeah thinking out of the box, really.
1: Yeah, so there's, you know, you kind of have this picture uh, in your mind, or at least I'm showing how narrow my mind is, but you know, overgrown quadcopter, oh no, you know, there's way, there's all kinds of different things, all kinds of different applications and constraints that go with that i was talking to some folks that wanted to do the first responders and they're saying okay we have to be able to land within a you know basically a, a city street we you know have some other design constraints that you kind of go oh yeah that's true you know you have to be able to work within you know have to be able to carry your emergency equipment so i think that um, that is going to be where i think the next big revolution am i excited about it quite honestly no Really? I mean, I'm excited about it from an engineering point of view, but these things are going to be autonomous, which means, okay, pilots, you know, the the joy, the thrill of flying, uh, the art of flying.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: I, I Plus see, the
0: integration of flying with piloted recreational aircraft. How's that going to happen?
1: Yeah. Who's going to win that argument? Right. You know, who's going to have more people You know, so I I, I'm a little cautious there because I think the much like with uh, with self-driving cars, I feel that there is going to be a, a loss of our personal liberties there because, you know, you're a human. I'm a human. We make mistakes. And if a human makes a mistake, well, we've got to fix that. You know, we'll take take away that ability for that human to think. And that's really, you know, you've mentioned a philosophical thing, but. You know, how did aviation get to where we, we are today? By people being allowed to take risks. Right. And, you know. Without risk, there's no gain. Yeah. And w- if we have autonomous cars, you know, it, y- you can see where I'm going with I, that.
0: Yeah, I can give you a great example of that. Is that is my F-150 has a, a the ability to back up a trailer using nothing but a knob and a screen. And I never use it because I don't want to lose that skill of backing up a trailer. Yeah. And you can imagine the big joke today, you see it on a lot of the social media now, is uh, the millennial uh, proof car, which is a stick shift because they don't know how to drive a stick shift. So, you know, that, that technology, although advancing, tends to leave things behind. But to be somewhat realistic, you or I don't know how to saddle up a horse and drive drive a a caravan of horses. So good point. You know, things move on. Um, I see maybe the next generation not caring so much about the fact that they have to give up the ability to pilot an aircraft.
1: Yeah, well, I would I would hate to see that that Liberty be either taken away or given away.
0: I agree with you 100% that the fact that um, we have AOPA and EAA and other organizations that that sit there and fight for our right to continue to fly um, and be free. I don't think a lot of people understand the freedom we have in this country. Yes, The ability to get into an airplane and fly where we want without having to ask permission to do it is absolutely incredible. I would almost venture to say unheard of for the rest of the world.
1: I, that is not much of an overstatement.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, Ken, it has been an absolute pleasure having you down here at the studios today. Um, I'm sure we could go on for another hour Easily, or two. Yes. <laughs> um, so we might have to pick this up again at, a, at another time. Um, but I, I, I absolutely enjoyed our time today. Um, and if people, again, want to get a hold of Ken, they can contact Ken at... Thanks again for coming down to the Flabby Bottom Flying Cup Studios. Thank you, David. And now I bring you chapter news. This month's meeting will be held July 13th, starting at 7 o'clock p.m. This meeting is open to anyone who wishes to attend in person, as well as those who want to attend via Zoom meeting. The Zoom meeting link will be published in the newsletter. For the latest and most up-to-date information, visit the chapter website or one of the many social media pages the chapter maintains, such as Facebook and Instagram. We have an exciting presentation this month from a pilot who recently completed a 22,000-mile around-the-world trip in a single-engine aircraft, Shinji Miata. Not only is flying around the world an accomplishment, only very few have ever completed but Shinji did it as a partially blinded pilot. Shinji made the flight in a 57-year-old beach bonanza he affectionately calls Lucy. Come listen to Shinji talk about how he was able to pursue his aviation passions after growing up in Japan and moving to the United States. AirVenture 2021, or better known as Oshkosh, is now less than three weeks away. If you are planning on flying into AirVenture, I would encourage you to download the NOTAM from the EAA website and study it as it is required reading for the flight into the airport during the event. I would strongly encourage pilots to print it out and keep it with you in the plane during your approach. I have personally witnessed an AirVenture controller deny aircraft entry because the pilot could not reference a NOTAM in the cockpit. The personal or commercial space race is warming up again, as both Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic and Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin have announced dates for launches in mid July. Not only will these launches include private citizens, but both will include Branson and Bezos as passengers. One notable bit of news about the Blue Origin New Shepard launch is that it will include 82 year old Wally Funk. Wally, whose given name is Mary, is a well-established aviator who was actually part of an early space program in the 60s to explore the concept of NASA launching women into space. Unfortunately for Mrs. Funk, the program concluded before any women were launched into space. But now, thanks to Jeff Bezos, Wally will have a chance to fulfill her dream of becoming an astronaut. That wraps it up for this month's podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing from our guest, Ken Kruger. Spread the word about the Chapter 84 podcast to your friends. It's available for download on most popular apps, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. Be sure to follow EA Chapter 84 on social media apps like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you do make it to Oshkosh this year, come by the Dynam booth and say hello. I will be there all week answering customer questions. Until next time, this has been your host, David Weber, and remember, stay off the brakes and keep moving forward.